We're in a matrix. We're in a matrix. We're in a matrix. Yeah. Let's do this. That's right, Brainiacs. Welcome aboard, my friends. Oh, my. Like I said, once again, we're joined in-house here. He is on the other side of the United States. Uh, not the, yeah, on the other side of the United States. I'm going to say on the other side of the planet, but hell, he ain't that far. Mr. Seth Showstack, everybody. Welcome, Mr. Showstack, to the Matrix Minds. I'm going to tell you right now, I, 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 know, I have known you from articles. I've known you through... Uh, television programs, you name it, you've been, you are absolutely f- a phenomenal speaker. You've talked, I, I cannot, you're, you're, you've got such a long bio. I don't even really want to just say it other than, you know what, this is my friend from SETI. I know this man. <laughs> you have written article upon article upon article. Well, Matt, you don't have to say more. Who cares about it? You could just say, here's, here's a guy. Here's That's a guy. good. Here's a guy. This is a guy that is like known for um, searching for, studying what we've all wanted to know. You get to play with the big guns, though. That's the thing. Oh, we're, us backyard guys, we like to see stuff, and and we get to play with like t- you know baby telescopes and stuff. But you get to play with the big guns, Seth. <laughs> baby telescopes. Yeah. Yeah. I like those. What, 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 t- let me let me ask you. What was your what was the last telescope that you got your hands on, Seth? Well, it's hard to say. I was up at the, uh, the Allen Telescope Array, which is the telescope we use for our SETI experiments. Uh, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, something like that. But you know, I wasn't actually running, and I was just up there looking at the improvements. And uh, the last time I actually ran a telescope was when I was. I guess uh, observing at uh, Arecibo, Puerto Rico. But that particular telescope is now, you know, a, a hump, a hunk of twisted metal. So it's kind of going. Is it outdated? No, it collapsed. It collapsed. collapsed. Yeah, that's that's the second telescope I used to use that has collapsed. I, I think I had the magic touch. <laughs> you, you know what? I, I didn't. Um, on my way to West Virginia to see my family, I don't know. I do not know the name of the telescope, but I do know that it is one hell of a big dish. It is an in-ground dish. Do you know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. That's the the. It's called the GBT, the Green Bank Telescope. Okay. It's in Green Bank, and it's the biggest telescope there. I was talking about another telescope, which was called the 300-foot telescope because it had a uh, metal mirror, if you will, that was 300 feet in diameter. Now, I used to use that a lot, actually, to study galaxies, but it also, as they say, collapsed. Just fell in on its own weight. Oh, my God. We're, do, what, what is today's... Um, going? going I mean, let me pick your brain about this. What kind of a telescope today is SETI using to like reach out and touch things? 
We can't touch someone. Well, uh, the telescope we use most often is our own telescope. It's an array of 42 antennas, and it's called the Allen Telescope Array because Paul Allen, you know, uh, gave the money to build it. So that's that's here in California. Right. But now, it's, it's 42 it, small telescopes. Is it um, is it radio or is it optical? It's radio. Radio. It's, yeah. Yep. I'm a radio astronomer, so I feel more comfortable with radio telescopes than with optical ones. Right. Seth, I've always wanted to, you know, since I've seen the movie, um, and I, I know you probably have too, the movie Contact, right? Yeah, I was an advisor for the film, actually. I knew that. No, I, uh, but I wanted to ask you specifically, what is... I mean, you know... The, the central thesis of the story is fiction, of course, right. based on a 1982 book by Carl Sagan. And, uh, you know, he knew enough about how telescopes really are that whenever it came to technical detail, it was all pretty accurate. As I say, I was an advisor for the film and, you know, they would ask me questions that we, I wasn't the only advisor, but they would ask questions of us that we could, you know, fill them in on so that they got the bare bones of the story right. But, of course, in that film, you know, uh, Ellie Arroway, the, <laughs> the lead the cast member, if you will, she finds the alien. She picks up the signal. Mm-hmm. And uh, that we haven't done yet. But, you know, for the rest, it was pretty good. Is it, is it really that, I'm, I'm saying, is it really that um, broad? Of how, That's the thing. How, what I mean by broad is it, is it really that hard to pick up a signal f- so, well, we haven't done it yet after uh, 60 years of trying. I don't know if that means it's hard, but it, it certainly doesn't seem to be easy. Right. But, I, I, okay, I, I'm trying. The the average person like myself, how vast, just how vast is our cosmos, Seth? Well, you could begin with our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. When you go out at night, you see all these stars in the sky unless it's cloudy. And those are all stars in our own galaxy, right? Mm-hmm. But the total number, I mean, most of them, most of those stars you simply can't see uh, because, you know, they're far enough away that they're too faint. But if you could see them all, you would count about 200, 300 billion stars. Bill- That's our galaxy. Now it's- two, two, three billion with a B. Damn. And, uh, but of course, our galaxy is not the only galaxy. Uh, we can see with the telescopes, we have several hundred billion other galaxies, each with a few hundred billion stars. So that's uh, a lot of stars. Oh, man. B with a B, billion with a B. Billions and billions, as Carl said. Man. You know what? To, to me, because I, I'm not a. This is this is funny. I wanted to bring you on here in the at the beginning of the week, okay? Because I do not. We these guys in 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 the chat know that we don't do interviews really on Monday, all right? But I wanted to specifically bring you in here on a Monday because at the end of the week, at the end of the week, I'm gonna I'm going to interview. His name is Flat Earth Dave. Okay, anybody, in wow. anybody, everybody, and anybody is welcome to the Matrix Minds. Everybody, I don't, I, 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 I'm, I'm not, 
picky or choosy who comes on here if you've got something to say and share it I, you know but my mind i've always seen my heavens my 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 sky as it's you know what i'm saying I, I i've always seen myself on on planet earth planet dirt and and i've never really bought into that theory right that we're on a flat plane i mean that's just i just can't wrap my head around that i i can't i've come up with my own my own little scientific theories and, and my own scientific things to like debunk it so i've always said well and this is why i love having you here because you think you you you've seen it you've seen outside of our own universe you've seen like you just said billions of other planets billions of other galaxies that are not on this flat plane that they claim to be on yeah well i think i think it's pretty well established matt that the earth is not a flat plane and if it were you'd have a difficult time you know on a round the world cruise mm. or a round the world flight or anything else that involved going around the world or you could just you know sign up at NASA, go into space you know go halfway to the moon and you'll see what our planet looks like right seth you got interested in you got interested not only in astronomy but but searching for searching for others at a young at a young age didn't you if I remember right, you're 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 you you've got really interested in astronomy and searching for ET. At how old? How old have you been searching for ET? Oh well, I haven't been doing that so long. I uh, I think sometime when I was in graduate school, actually, okay. uh, I was using a radio telescope in, here in California, and I uh, was reading a book. It was actually a book by a Russian physicist that had been annotated, not really annotated, added to by Carl Sagan. It was called Intelligent Life in the Universe. And, uh, you know, I was sitting there at four in the morning reading this book because, you know, when you're doing your thesis, you have to do all the observing yourself, or at least. And, uh, and it just struck me as very romantic, the idea that antennas that were outside the window of where I was sitting uh, could be used in principle to find E.T. That seemed like a pretty nifty idea at the time. So that's that's when I got interested in it, but I didn't do my first experiment actually, and that was done with Jill Tarter, uh, the uh, protagonist for the Ellie Arroway character in the movie Contact. Mm-hmm. I didn't do that until 1981, so that's been a while. Wow! See, in, in, in 1981, I think I was, oh my God, seven. Yeah. Well, do you see what I'm saying? So I mean, it's yeah. You've got you've got a long history of of doing this to, in my life and a lot of everybody's lives. Well, I've got a long history. Period. As you can ask the uh, you know local judges. <laughs> so so what got you involved? How how did you get involved with with SETI itself? I mean, where where what started that career? If you don't mind well, me asking. Yeah, oh, it's not, nothing secret about it. Well, it turns out that this very same Jill Tarter, okay. the character upon which Ellie Arroway in the movie Contact was based, she took a job. Well, she went on sabbatical. She had a job, but she took a sabbatical in Europe, and she came to the Netherlands. Turns out I was living there at the time. I had a job at a, at a university. And, uh, you know, I knew her name, but I had never met her. Well, 
you know, we got together and I said, look, you know, we've got a radio telescope here, which is pretty, pretty good. Why don't we try and do a, an experiment, a SETI experiment? And we did. We pointed the antennas at the center of our galaxy and, uh, you know, look for signals there. So that's how I met her. And then when I later moved to California here, she found out I was around and she offered me a job. That was it. So you got your job by ob- obviously teaching in a university, right? I, I taught a little bit. I wasn't, I was a research faculty, so okay. I didn't have to do very much teaching, but I enjoyed teaching. <laughs> it was okay. Right. Yeah. You know, my, my, I was studying galaxies, as I said, at that time using radio telescopes. Yeah. What is your favorite, what is your favorite local, local galaxy to ever, to, to observe uh, and, and communicate with? Well, my favorite local galaxy is one called NGC 2403. Uh, in fact, I dedicated my thesis to all the inhabitants of NGC 2403, although I don't know that there are any, but I would be surprised if there weren't. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, most people who study galaxies say, well, if you want to have a favorite, it might as well be one you can see either with your eyes or a pair of binoculars. And uh, with your eyes here in the northern hemisphere and with the binoculars, you can see Andromeda, the Andromeda galaxy, also known as M31. Um, But in the southern hemisphere, there are two small galaxies that are even closer than Andromeda called the Large and Small Magellanic Clouds. Now, I guess I've observed all those things, but normally I would observe things that are a little farther away. It turns out that that's somewhat easier to do. You mentioned you mentioned it's one of your favorite galaxies as well. And, and, you know, talk to it as well as the inhabitants. What, what do you mean by the inhabit? What do you mean by that as a, as a, as a human? Well, I I don't know what they would call themselves. uh, The NGC 2403 people. All right. I'm not being, I'm being serious because they call themselves. So I, I, I wouldn't dare to assign a name to them, but they were whatever societies are in that galaxy. It's a, also got a couple of hundred billion star systems. So you can probably safely assume it has, uh, you know, up to a trillion planets, of which maybe one in a hundred is, uh, you know, suitable for life. And if that's the case, right, then you're talking about 10 billion planets with life. So if any of those uh, residents are interested right. in my thesis, let let me know. <laughs> Seth, the possibility of the possibility of life out there is very plausible, isn't it? Well, I, I think uh, if it's not, then there's something very special here about Earth, right? Why should this mm-hmm. not only life but intelligent life, right? What you you know, if you think it, that that's some sort of miracle, then it's probably happened many, many times. What do you personally believe or feel? I'm I'm, I'm just going to get on your into your belief about um, crop circles because oh. that, that's like a really really wild phenomena, Seth. Yeah, I, I think they're decorative. Uh, I don't think they have anything to do with aliens. Okay. But you, know, you, you got to ask yourself, gee, why is it that the aliens one have come to Earth and two decided to announce their presence by carving graffiti in British? <laughs> It's never struck me as very reasonable, particularly since there are art uh, collectives 
in the UK who will readily admit to the fact that they made these things. Mm-hmm. So you got that choice. Oh, they were made by an art collective or they were made by aliens who come to despoil British agriculture. I mean, you know, just have to choose what makes more sense to you. What makes more sense? See, you're a realist. Yeah. You are a realist. You are a scientist. To deface our crops. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Let's go back in history. Okay, let's go back in history to um, what what we all know as as the Nazca lines. Okay, are you, you're familiar, right? Yeah, I've seen them from the air. What do you think that their purpose was back in the, back in that day? You being well, an that, yeah, that day wasn't so very long ago. I think that they're reckoned to be about five hundred years old. So, uh, and I, I really don't know what the Nazca Indians made them for. But people who are anthropologists, people who study that culture, think that they were, uh, you know, they were sort of like scarecrows. Scarecrows have a, a function in the agriculture, right? Keep the, the birds from eating the crops. Well, these things apparently were designed to bring rain. I don't know if they really did bring rain. Bring rain to uh, the fields of the people, the Nazca Indians, that were living there 500 years ago. I mean, I, I don't know what else they could be used for, actually. They just, you know, works of art. You know, they say that that those the, the, some of those not all of them they say that that there were like you said the word inhabitants inhabitants came from the orion constellation and because there's a there i interviewed a fella about almost a year ago and he claims to be the man who solved the nazca lines and he connected the nazca lines with the inhabitants right of orion Right. Well, yeah. Uh, keep in mind that Orion is, in fact, a constellation. It's not a place. Those stars are all at, well, most of those stars are at completely different distances. They just have to line up, right? So you see them as if they're in one spot, but they're not. They're in all sorts of different distances, right? So there's no such thing as being a, an inhabitant of Orion, it, so, so it being a constellation, meaning it, it what it's inhabit. Uh, I'm sorry. It being a constellation, meaning there's galaxies inside of that constellation, right? Well, not galaxies. I mean, all, all those stars are in our galaxy, right? Ah, it's like, okay. But, but they're at completely different distances. Yeah. There are a couple of them that are close to one another, but in general, most of the stars in the Orion constellation mm-hmm. are at different distances. So, you know, it's like, I don't know, looking at a forest, <laughs> you see all these trees, but they're not all at the same distance. You could say, oh, I'm going to go to the trees, but where is that? There are a whole lot, bunch of trees, and some are close and some are far away. And this is exactly the same with any constellation. They just look like they're at the same distance because they're so far away, you can't tell the difference in their distances. Are they, are, can't, are, now, if I'm not mistaken, you have done a lecture on, um, oh my, I'm, I'm, I don't even have it in my notes. I know, I'm looking through it. The Red Limit, am I right? Have you talked well, about that? 
No, I don't think so. But it, maybe okay. you're speaking. I'm the expansion. Rob. I'm talking about the expansion of the universe. The universe expanding. They say you've talked about that. Well, yeah, I've talked about that, but I. Yes, I, ha I have. <laughs> okay, as far as the lecture goes, whenever some, you know, whenever you discuss the expansion of what we what we know it to be, what the hell are you, what? Where do you even begin to talk about that? Well, here's the, the the trick is only to note that you can tell how far. No, let's not get so indirect. You can tell whether something's moving toward you or away from you and how fast by looking at the light from stars, if that's what you're trying to measure and seeing whether they look a little redder or a little bluer. Mm -hmm. If they're away from you, they're at a lower frequency of light. So more red, if they're moving toward you, they're more blue. It's just the same way you can, you could in principle tell the speed of cars zipping by you on the freeway, right? If they're coming toward you, then the noise they make goes to higher frequencies. If they're moving away from you, they go to lower frequencies. So think about it. You're standing next to uh, some interstate or whatever, and here comes a car, and it you know goes from high frequencies down to low. So what happens when it goes by you is it goes from here, right? right. Mm -hmm. goes from high frequency to low frequency. The same is true with light, too, right? If something's moving toward you at the speed of, I don't know, you know, 20,000 miles per hour or something like that. It will, in fact, have its colors all shifted up to the blue part of the spectrum because it's coming toward you. And then after it passes you, it'll shift down to the red part of the spectrum. I mean, this is this is 19th century physics, but that uh, Doppler shift, as it's called, allows you to determine the motions of galaxies, entire galaxies, because all the stars in a galaxy are going pretty much the same speed. What you see is that the farther away a galaxy is, the faster it's moving away from you. So it's like looking in the room where you pull a pull the pin on a hand grenade, right? Right. And look at it a fraction of a second later, you'll note that all the pieces of the hand grenade are moving away from you. I mean, it's not that you have bad breath or anything; they're just moving away from you because you know they were in one spot. You pull the pin, they all start you know filling up the room. That's the way the universe looks. I I may have been talking about someone else's um, lecture whenever I said the red limit. Do you going to that degree? Has SETI or NASA or anybody ever actually found the edge of this vastness? I mean, it, what again? I, I it blows my mind to know that there are billions upon billions upon billions of galaxies, not just our own little thing, but I mean, the universe itself, is, you know what I'm saying, holds. So does it have the limits, Seth? Where, where, where the hell's the limit? Or is well, there? you know, probably there's no limit. I mean, you, you can't think of this as like, gosh, you know, how, ma how many squirrels are in my backyard? I mean, I don't know what that number is, right. but it's a finite number. In other words, in principle, you could count all the squirrels, right? But when you're talking about the number of stars or even galaxies in the universe, it's not clear that there's a finite number of them. It might be an infinite number of them. We don't know, but it could be an infinite number. In any case, it's a very big number. The number of stars in the universe that we can see 
is uh, on the order of the number of grains of sand on all the beaches of Earth. It's a big number. It's a big number. Seth, far away. Whenever you know, on on this show we talk about we talk about ET, we talk about UFOs because there's a lot. I've interviewed quite a few um, experiencers, okay, extraterrestrial experiencers, abductees, you name it. Going, going on that one, okay. For us trying to go outside of our own planet, our own whatever, our own little local, there's something supposedly that stops us from doing that. Okay, I, I've heard. I specifically have heard that the Van Allen that what is it, the Van Allen Belt, the Van Allen Belt, is so radiated that we can't get past it. Is this true? No, it's not true. Okay. Whoever that is, make sure you don't owe them any money no i don't owe them any money i'm just saying that that's what we that's what i've heard so i, I i'm a person that believes nothing that i hear and half of this and half of what i see because again I, I question everything that's why i asked you i you you would be someone that would know what yeah. is the van allen made what is it made of is it made of planetary what is it made of planetary Most bodies and shit atomic size charged particles okay okay so it's just, and it happens to be that the Earth's magnetic field has trapped some particles in it, right? So, uh, you know, the, the, the Van Allen belts aren't very far away. The nearest Van Allen belt to, you know, Ohio is probably no higher up than well, maybe a couple of hundred miles, maybe, maybe a couple of hundred miles. That's a Van Allen belt, but clearly we've gone farther than that, right? Unless you don't believe that we went to the moon. No, I'm I mean, I, I, I I personally believe that we have been out. uh, Yeah. I I personally believe that we have been to the moon. Okay. I also personally believe that we have at some point in time, probably, probably lived on and or species have inhabited Mars. That's true. That's the way I feel. I personally believe that now, whether it's true, I, I have no idea. Well, you do have an idea, actually, because, you know, you can go online and you can find all these photos made by rovers, orbiters, things that you know, plop down onto the surface of Mars and stay in one spot that make a lot of measurements, including pictures and so forth and so on. And uh, somehow you never see any remains from any prior inhabitants. It just looks like a red desert, which mostly is. Is it possible... Seth, just I'm asking because you, again, you're a realist. You're you're a scientist. You you dig deep. Is it possible, probable, just possible, that we have at one specific time in our known existence, or even unknown existence, ever inhabited Mars? Is it possible? Well, I would say probably not. The reason not is because a the evidence that people trot out to try and prove this to you is very very suspect, but. Beyond that, it wouldn't be so hard to find. I mean, suppose, you know, tomorrow morning at 3 a.m., somehow all the uh, inhabitants of Earth were wiped out. I mean, I don't know. You you get a super COVID strain. It's like everybody's gone, right? Now, you come back uh, 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now. It doesn't matter. Would you be able to persuasively argue that there were once intelligent beings on this planet? 
I mean, if not, then what about all these freeway overpasses? Or, or, or what about the skyscrapers of downtown New York? Or what about all the wires stretched around? Or all the interstates and so on and so on? I mean, sure, that will eventually de decay with time, but it takes a long time. The pyramids, some of them, were built, you know, uh, 5,000 years ago. And they're still there. You know, if I, if I tried to convince you, you know, there used to be a uh, civilization here in this desert part of the world along the Nile. <laughs> and, they, and, and, and they built stuff. And you'd say, oh, come on, that's not true. There's, there's nobody there now who ever built a pyramid. No, that's true. There aren't people there now who built a pyramid. But you, you would be you know, hard-pressed not to believe that they had once done it if you just walked to the west of Cairo city limits and just looked at them. Right. Well, but, but my, my mind goes to this planet is, is billions of years old. Yeah, true. So those interstates, those interstates would be gone. In billions of years, yes, they would. We have well, been bombarded, Seth. We have been bombarded as well as the moon, Saturn, by um, space debris. Let's just say space debris. We have wow. been through, right? We have also been through polar shifts. We have been through all kinds of collateral damage here on this planet. So let's just say, let's just say, for instance, something like that had happened. That civilization, Seth, would have been gone. All it would take is the earth to like literally pole shift and what we see today would be gone. Gone. Well, I'm not even sure of that, to be honest, Matt, because, you know, the earth's poles have shifted, not nearly as much as on Mars, but the earth has a pretty big moon and that tends to keep the poles from shifting very much. But even, you know, ignore all that, the time it takes for them to, to wander, the poles to wander so that the North Pole is not where it is now, but it moves down to, you know, British Columbia or something like that, right? Uh, that, that, that's on the order of thousands of years for it to do that, which means that anything that's around here that doesn't like having the North Pole in their backyard, uh, they just walk away from it. You have plenty of time to walk away from it. It's not something that happens, you know, from last night to this uh, to this morning. I mean, it doesn't doesn't happen like that. It takes a long time. Seth, we've we've heard we've heard that we've never seen the dark side of the moon. Correct. Well, there is. Uh, well, the only dark side of the moon is the inside. That's dark. Wait, what? But, well, there's no dark side of the moon. The uh, the side that you don't see. Right, that gets as much sunlight as the side you do see. Now, how is that possible? Well, would you talk about the dark side of Earth? There's no dark ah. side of Earth. Right. I mean, it, it's dark here for 12 hours, and then the next 12 hours it's sunny, and then it goes dark again because the Earth is rotating. Well, the Moon is rotating too. So we actually, so there is whenever because I, we've always said we've oh, well I've heard that the Moon does not rotate. It is what it is. You're looking at it, and it's just, yeah. like, fixed there. Yeah, well, it, it, one side always faces you, but that doesn't mean it isn't rotating. Think about it. You know, uh, just uh, have your, your pet Pekingese sit in the middle of the living room and walk around the dog, you know, in a big circle, but always face the dog, right? Now, if somebody looked at you, they would say, oh, wait a minute, I see his face toward me, and now... 
you know, when he's halfway around the circle, now I see the back of his head. You actually rotated once, right? Yeah. So actually the moon is rotating, but because of some, you know, freshman physics, it has, uh, you know, locked itself into this funny behavior where one side is always facing the earth because it's orbiting the earth. One side's always facing the earth, uh, but it doesn't mean that the moon's not rotating. And you can tell that the moon doesn't have a dark side. Just go out and look at the moon in two weeks and you'll see it as a crescent in the sky. Well, yeah, so you can see right there, the, the both sides, the lit side and the unlit side, right? Both it, uh, the moon would be like, uh, you know, 14 days or something like that. Sure, it doesn't rotate as quickly as the Earth does, but it isn't, it isn't true that there's a dark side. <laughs> right, right. Now, see, again, I've, I've always heard that that it is what it is and we've always seen the same side and it never moves and never rotates. So thank you, Mr. I'm serious. Thank you, Mr. Reality. That, well, that I now know, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I Rotate it all, just think about it. If it's going around the earth then it would always, you know, it would be like this. It would just go around with one side always facing, I don't know, some godforsaken star out there. Right. But it, it's, you know, Let's go. Let's go way out there. Okay. Let's go way out of this world, Seth. Yeah. Nibiru, Planet X. Does it exist? Well, there have been a lot of Planet X's, of course. The uh, Back in the beginning of the 20th century, there was the claim that there was a Planet X because there were strange, uh, strange behavior from Neptune, the planet Neptune. You know, it, it, it didn't quite go around the sun the way we expected it to go around the sun, according to Newton's laws, right? And uh, so people figured, well, you know, the fact that it's not going around the way it should must be because there's another planet farther out in Neptune that's pulling on it with its gravity, right? That's the way they found Neptune itself, because of the, the funny motions of Uranus, which is the next uh, planet in. So on the basis of that, there was uh, a suggestion that there was another relatively large planet beyond Neptune. So people started looking for it. And actually a guy from, I guess he was Indiana, not Ohio, uh, <laughs> found it in 1930. And uh, there was a contest to decide what to call it. And uh, there was a young woman, she was, I think, 11 or 12 in England who suggested the name Pluto. So that's what it was. King. As it turns out, Pluto is no longer considered a planet, but that's nomenclature, right? That's just uh, what people consider a planet, what they don't consider a planet. But it was really there. It was really there. Seth, in my life, in my life, I will always call I I, I will always call Pluto a planet. My no. I will always call my very intelligent mother just served me nine pickles. I cannot remove the pickle. <laughs> what it why why is it not longer why is it no longer considered a planet well the the real reason is that beginning in the 1990s astronomers began finding other big things in our solar system even farther away than pluto right okay. and one of them in particular was a little bit bigger than pluto it was something that we could only do you know more or less uh, in modern times because we just didn't have the equipment, the telescopic equipment, to find things like that. 
But these guys down at Caltech were finding things, you know, the same size as Pluto or a little bit smaller than Pluto or a little bit larger than Pluto. And they didn't know what to call it. So because, I mean, if it was going to be a planet, I mean, you can call it a planet. Nobody's going to stop you. You won't get arrested Mm -hmm. for calling these planets. But if you do call them planets, given that, you know, at least one of them was bigger than Pluto. Right. You know, okay, you're going to have to add a whole bunch more planets to the uh, to the list of planets that every kid learns in the fourth grade. Right. Right. And that was too onerous, too difficult. And it was better to demote Pluto and call it a proto planet or a pseudo planet or a dwarf planet or, you know, there are all sorts of names rather than adding all these things that were being discovered to the uh, roster of planethood. The roster of so planethood. <laughs> oh, where am I going here? Um, Go to Pluto. No, I'm not going to Pluto. Well, at least we know what it looks like now. Um, the, uh, again, going back into history, right? I, I wanted to connect, I wanted to bring realism back to this because I study Egyptology a lot. I love Egypt. Um, and Mesopotamia, the Sumerians, the Egyptians, they've got depictions of what we know as the Anunnaki, Seth. And there's depictions of a star, the sun, or a sun, okay? And pictures of different stars around that central sun. So we've known, I'm, I'm Seth, I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, throw you under the bus here or whatever, but I... I do you know what I'm saying? Person sort of arched over the frame there, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I might think there's something different. Mm-mm. The Anunnaki. There are if you if you you look up the Sumerians, right? The Sumerians and on the Anunnaki, there are depictions of our galaxies, or I'm sorry, our solar system on hundreds of year old templates from from back in them days. How was that even po- I mean, so I'm saying, how is that even possible? Because the telescope wasn't developed then. So we've got remnants of our solar system on um, uh, papyrus, okay, that are dated from, like I said, ancient Egypt, ancient Sudan, Sumeria. But here's the thing, Seth. Our solar system on that depiction doesn't show Earth as you and I would see Earth. It shows Earth from an inbound perspective. Are you aware of this? Well, I've seen what's on the, you know, the walls and the valleys of the kings and stuff okay. like that. All right. But, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what the Egyptians knew that. How is it we possible, didn't... Seth? But, I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want to diss the Egyptians, right. but they didn't really understand how the solar system was put together. But I'll tell you what—they sure laid a, a fourteen-acre foundation on solid zero degree, and it's absolutely perfectly mathematically perfect. Three hundred sixty-five yeah. million stones, Seth. Three hundred sixty-five million two hundred stones, to be precise. That's that's the same rev as our calendar Gregorian. 
our Gregorian calendar, Seth. How's that possible? Well, I, I didn't know it was even true. That, but, that is true. Yeah. Okay. Well, we could. We could all right. Uh, you, I, you know, if the Egyptians, for example, had pointed to one of the stars in the sky, they had a lot of these stars named already, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they said, you know, you know, Zork, that star. <laughs> Zork? That star up there has uh, three planets, and uh, they're all different sizes, but this one is the biggest, and that's the next biggest, and the third is the least large. And if it turned out that that was true, I would say, okay, they knew something we didn't know when it comes to astronomy. But, you know, much is made of the ability of uh, people in Mesopotamia and even in Egypt to predict solar eclipses, for example. But, in fact, it's, it's not clear that they could actually predict solar eclipses. They, they recognized certain patterns in the solar eclipse cycle. They did that because, you know, they didn't have electric light. So a lot of them looking at the sky at night and they just noticed they kept records. The astronomers kept records because that was necessary for agriculture. They needed to know, you know, when winter began, when summer began, that kind of thing. Absolutely. So they, that, that's just a matter of, you know, watch, not, not so hard. But in terms of, you know, gosh, could they have figured out something like when the solar eclipses occur? Not so sure they could. That's that's a pretty subtle thing. When when talking about the telescope, right? I, I, again, going going back, we got we got the um, the refracting the refracting telescope, the direct telescope, the radio telescope, the light telescope. What else? How far have we actually made it technological? Well, uh, in terms of optical telescopes, those are the ones that work, if you will, in visible light. Right. Mm-hmm. How many telescopes do we have that work that way? Well, quite a few, because, you know, telescopes made in 1870 would still be useful even today. But, you know, with the, the kinds of telescopes we have now really dwarf a lot of that. I mean, the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, which was launched a couple of months ago, whatever it was, uh, you know, that's, that, that's still not, if you will, really operational yet because they have to check it out and they they don't want to break it when they open it up and all that sort of thing but that's a telescope that looks at infrared not at visible light really it's designed to see the infrared universe but we have telescopes that work in x-ray speaking of x-rays we have some that work at other you know high energy parts of the spectrum we have ultraviolet telescopes in space other infrared telescopes in space obviously radio telescopes that farther down the spectrum we have those uh, centimeter waves, meter waves, millimeter waves have all those kinds of things. I mean, you know, beginning in the 1930s, I think astronomers realized that if you looked at the sky with something other than a mirror or lens telescope, you could see things otherwise you couldn't see. And there was something to be learned about the structure of the universe by doing that. So, yeah, you know, if you can think of it, it's probably been built. <laughs> That goes to say, like, like, like you're saying, out now. Where my mind goes, Seth, is this: you, you mentioned your favorite, your favorite galaxy, yeah. and your and the inhabitants. Okay, would they be? Okay, just hear me out. Would they possibly? Could they possibly be? So more far advanced than us, with what we're trying to do and use, like yourself and NASA trying to reach out there and touch them. We are so far beyond their, 
their level of, of intelligence? What's the possibility of that, Seth? That out there, they're so more advanced than us. We're reaching. It's like us, we're trying to communicate with a soup can when they're trying to communicate with something completely different. Okay, I I misunderstood your question. I thought you were asking, could we be more advanced than they are? No, sir. you're asking opposite. The reverse. Yeah, of course. The reason is simple, right? You yourself said, okay, the Earth has been around for what four and a half billion years, mm -hmm. but the galaxy has been around for about 13 billion years. In other words, the universe has been around three times longer than the Earth has. So, you know, the universe could have cooked up intelligent beings five billion years ago before things like the moon or Jupiter or Mars or any of that stuff, uh, you know, even existed. So, you know, there undoubtedly are societies, I say undoubtedly because I don't doubt it, but I, undoubtedly societies that are billions of years more advanced than we are, and I can only hope their television shows are better. <laughs> Sitcoms? Yeah, reality TV. I'd be disappointed if they hadn't gotten beyond our level on that. I'll tell you what, the movie Contact, what was funny to me is why, why in the hell did they pick the radio signal to send back the announcement of the Olympic Games by by uh, Adolf Hitler. Yeah, well, I'll I... Oh. I'll never figure that one out. Oh, well, I think it's simple. It's just that, uh, you know, Carl Sagan wanted them to respond by sending a, a signal back to us, one that we had sent into space, because that would make it obvious that they're talking to us, right? They didn't send gobbledygook that would only make sense to, you know, their own people, if you will. And the oldest radio or television, say television, the oldest television broadcast is said to be the 1936 Olympic broadcast in Berlin. As it turns out, that was that was you know not good science. I'm sure right. Sagan, but he, he needed a, a literary device. I mean, the, the reason it wasn't such good science is that yes, there was a television broadcast, early television. Uh, in 1936 of the Olympics in Berlin. But the transmitter was so weak that you couldn't easily, easily pick up that signal, even if you lived in Berlin, let alone that you, you lived on Vega, wherever the star system was in uh, in contact. Is Vega. So, yeah, it's Vega. You yeah. hit that one. You hit that one on um, tonight, so. What's that? Vega's in the winter sky. Maybe that's why I hit it. The winter sky? Your your latest your latest observation. What was it? Your latest. You mean, well, I never looked at individual stars. I looked at galaxies. So if that's what you mean, yeah, not sure. yeah. Your your late your latest observational the one you've like I don't know yesterday the day before yesterday. What? Tell oh, me, tell me. We, we we just point our radio telescope now because it's SETI. We just point at five star systems. And, uh, you know, try and see if there's signals coming from them. What we know now that we didn't know even 20 years ago, really, is that the overwhelming majority of stars have planets. And maybe one in every two or three stars has a planet that's about the same size as the Earth and the same average temperature as the Earth. That's, not, that's new information. We didn't have that not so long ago. That's what we look at. That's what you point Seth, when they say when they I've I've heard and, I, and perhaps possibly you also you've heard that we are in 
quote unquote, the Goldilocks zone. Have you heard that? What does that mean? Well, that means the soup is not too hot and the soup is not too cold. But who wants to eat soup anyhow? I mean, it, it just means that you remember the story of Goldilocks and the three bears. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, there were three bowls of soup. And, uh, you know, one was too hot, the next was too cold. But the third bowl of soup was just right. Okay. okay, so that's kind of this, I mean, this is kind of a cruddy analogy, but that was, that was the way it's described. Because a lot of plants, we found, you know, thousands of planets. But, you know, there, there are literally billions, hundreds of billions of planets just in our galaxy. But, you know, most of them are going to be pretty worthless, like Mercury. I mean, you know, you, you, there's no point in buying a lot of real estate on Mercury because it's too hot. Right. And, you know, don't want to buy a, a lot of real estate on Neptune because it's too cold or Pluto or Uranus. These are too cold. So, you know, astronomers said, well, you don't want a planet that's too hot. You don't want that's too cold. What you want one is that is just right. And that's called a planet in the Goldilocks zone for obvious reasons. So it's obvious that that, that terminology means that we are in in our our universe and yeah. a local spot that is absolutely perfect for creative life that's what well saying, i right? say it's perfect but it allows it at least you know right. to say that it's perfect you can always ask yourself well wait a minute maybe there's a better spot to be maybe we're really missing out mm-hmm. but you don't know that right all right well yeah, yeah. it kind of works you know most of the stuff in my backyard is alive so I guess it works. Oh, it definitely, <laughs> definitely works. I mean, hell, I, I would, I would like to say I'm, 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 I'm alive in my tangible physical reality myself, Seth. <laughs> Without a doubt, it works. The Goldilocks zone works. So whoever the hell's behind it, I don't know. And yeah. it's another. That's another show. I figure it's the bears. The bears. What? Is, well, before before you go, what is SETI up to now? What What are you guys doing now? Well. I think that the most important thing that we're doing right now is probably not so very interesting to listeners because it's uh, it's in fact building equipment, right? Improving the receivers so they'll be more sensitive, that they'll cover more of the radio dial and that sort of thing. And that'll take maybe another six months, something like that, after which time we'll be back to observing on the Allen Telescope Array, which, by the way, people can visit if they want. It's Northern California in a place called Hat Creek. You'll need a good map to find Hat Creek. It's very small. Uh, but, you know, there's also, and this maybe falls under the same rubric about, you know, this is equipment oriented, but it's to uh, use the very large array, which is a set of 27 antennas uh, in the deserts of northern New Mexico, actually. Uh, you see it in movies all the time. They like to use it for movies. Uh, 27 antennas there. They're pretty big antennas. And we've figured out a way to use those telescopes, even when they're being used by somebody else for something else, to be able to also use them for studying some nearby star systems to see if we pick up any signals. So that'll be a that's a big deal because that means you have 24-7 observing time on a very, very uh, high tech, if you will radio telescope. So that's all interesting stuff. As uh, you may have heard me say last time, uh, at a talk I gave in Germany years ago, I, I bet everybody a, 
cup of Starbucks, we'd find ET within, I think it was two dozen years or so. But that'll be the middle 2030s. And uh, I may lose, in which case I have to buy a lot of coffee. But it's based on things like that. It's based on technological improvements in the experiments. I know, I know after reading a crap ton of your articles, listening to your lectures, that you truly, I do, I truly believe, and I know that you believe that, that, that there is life out there and that we will, or they will, either one, one, either one we're going to find it and, or they're going to find us, one, one or the other. I do know that. On Mars, they probably won't find us, but we may find them. Right. Well, that's, that is what's, uh, that is it in, in indeed the inevitable and of what what study is completely that's what that's what it's for that's why you're doing what you're doing and I, yeah i think i think you're right matt it's just an interesting question do we have any company out there or are we the smartest things in the milky way galaxy i can hardly believe that but you know could be true no 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 my friend i know that you know that yeah. I can't publish it on the basis of... I know that. I know that. Again, I know that. You know that. But uh, you know what? The inevitable. It's going to happen, Seth. It's it's going to happen. Hopefully in your lifetime, because you've been waiting a long time. Well, I have. And, you know, I'm afraid to cross the street, lest my lifetime, you know, gets suddenly ended, in which case I miss out on the news. No, you'll be all right. Seth, we're coming up on the hour, my friend. I'm going to let you go back to your wife, go back to your life. And, man, I, I, I have enjoyed spending the last hour with you, picking your brain about just numerous stuff from, from everything, from, from the solar <laughs> systems on Egypt walls to Nibiru to everything else under the sun. Yeah. Well, anytime, Matt. I'm here. Oh, I don't remember about Nibiru, but maybe we did, and I – I fell asleep during that part. Nibiru, I do that. The Planet X. It was. It's whenever I brought up Planet X, you know, and you're like, "Well, there's there was plenty of new, you know, plenty of Nibiru's in there." Planet X. Planet yeah, X. I hate from Planet X. I mean, is that the best you can do? Only Planet X. Why don't you give it a a real name like Bob? We've got to have you back, Seth. Toward towards the end of the year, after after everything settled down, I, I, I want you to give give us an update as to where where SETI is at. You know, if, if, and, or I, I know as well as you do, there's something, if you still find something between now and then, which I, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that you do. I have always, I have always, but uh, again, your research, your, your lectures, your material that you put out, they can, everybody can find your, your guys's new research where uh, SETI, SETI Institute.org, right? SETI.org. That's it. SETI.org. You met. Yeah. Now, are you got a question? Are you guys still before before you totally leave? Are you guys still having? Do you still have the downloadable software to where people can help process images? Well, that was never our software, anyhow. That was SETI at home. Ah, okay. And that's a University of California Berkeley project. But they, as of about two years ago, they stopped doing that because they couldn't afford to do it. You know, take somebody full time to maintain the software and right. people's questions and stuff like that. It was very popular. 7 uh, million people downloaded this, the uh, software. My friend, I, 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 there, there's, there's three people that I know of, including myself that did that. I love, absolutely love your guys's research 
and the search for ET. So if if I could help you and they helped you because we all downloaded it. Like I said, the, the three that I know and myself. Oh, yeah. Trying. You're welcome to 7 million. It was a very successful thing. All right, Seth. Thank you again for being with me. Thank you for being with everybody and sharing sharing your vast knowledge of the known unknown universe. I appreciate <laughs> you. All right. Okay. I'll talk, I'll talk to you next time. All right. Good night, good night, Seth. All right. Good night to you guys. Appreciate you. We're in a matrix. We're in a matrix. We're in a matrix. Yeah. Let's do this. One of the fastest growing talk shows on the internet. This is your show. Welcome aboard. The Matrix Minds. One of the most controversial conspiratorial shows on the web. The Matrix Minds. That's right. Buckle up, everybody. Let's go. Paranormal, huh? Conspiracy, huh? Ufology, hidden Egyptology, and anything and everything we can get our hands on. Let's go.